Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to the third in the series by Chris Bertels, Narrow Road, Broad Mind. I want to remind us of what the object of these classes is. It's contained in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, where it says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. To give the reason for the hope that you have, not just the feelings, not just the assumptions, preconceived ideas about the hope that we have, but a reason. A reason that will make sense to the people who are asking us the question in the first place. And so what Chris is trying to help us to do is to rethink some of the ways we interpret scripture, some of the ways we think about scripture, to make sure that we're answering the right question, or at least giving a a well thought out reason for the hope that we have rather than relying on assumptions. And in, in essence, what Chris is dealing with is the fact that science and faith do not have to be in conflict. Certainly God can do anything, but he set up science. And see, he works within it most of the time. Now in this class, he's going to be addressing some of our most cherished beliefs. And we have amongst ourselves, I'm sure, strong opinions one way or another about things to do with the creation sequence in Genesis chapter 1, the existence of Adam and Eve, and the Garden of Eden. And I'd like to encourage us, whatever our current thinking is on these topics, that we keep an open mind and listen carefully to what Chris has to say. You don't have to agree with him, and Chris wouldn't ask us to necessarily agree with him, but the exercise in thinking about our assumptions is very valuable So that when we're discussing these issues, if people ask us about Adam and Eve and evolution and genetics, we have good reasons for the way that we uh, put our point of view across and they make sense, at least to us, and they've been reasoned through. So that's really what we're dealing with here today. We're questioning our own assumptions so that we can be better equipped to help answer people's questions. That's the point. So I hope you enjoy what Chris has to share. I'll now turn you over to today's class. Hello, this is Chris. Thank you for watching. This is the third class in my series, Narrow Road, Broad Mind. My aim in this series has been to demonstrate that questioning our interpretation of scripture can be uh, a positive thing. And I hope I've shown that by presenting uh, alternative interpretations which respect the God-inspired nature of the text but by considering that text in its cultural and historical context find a meaning which we find does no longer conflict with the real world evidence offered by science so so far we have considered uh, areas where there was a conflict between the bible and uh, first of all archaeological evidence and then in the second class cos the evidence of uh, cosmology. And today we are considering human origins. So the title of this class is Would You Adam and Eve It? And for anyone unfamiliar with Cockney rhyming slang, that means would you believe it? So effectively, the question we are asking today is would you believe in Adam and Eve? So A traditional interpretation says that Adam and Eve were the first human beings, that they are therefore physical ancestors of all humans, that their sin has cursed us all. And for those, which is many, who believe in the doctrine of original sin, 
then they believe that we inherit physically in a sense the sin of adam and eve and therefore need a savior so the doctrine of original sin is fundamental to the concept of uh, need for salvation so we find uh, a conflict there when we consider that in contrast with the scientific account now the numbers i'm going to give you here are ballpark figures depending on what source you look at you get somewhat different numbers but essentially if anthropologists tell us that the fossil record shows evidence of early humans millions of years ago i'm saying seven million years ago here in africa and that homo sapiens developed from earlier hominid species around 300,000 years ago migrating from africa to the wider world about 60,000 years ago and agriculture again depending on source appeared between 23 to 12,000 years ago and interestingly Cain and Abel appeared to be farmers though the scientific evidence is telling us here that was a very late development so there's a it's hard then to find harmony between the scientific account and the genesis account at least as we traditionally interpret it so how do we respond do we reject the scientific evidence because it doesn't agree with our interpretation of the bible or do we reconsider the biblical narrative with this in mind um, i read this book by uh, co-author between dennis benema who is a evangelical christian geneticist and scott mcknight a pastor and theologian and the first half of the book is uh, venema pre presenting the very strong evidence for evolution and uh, genetics and then Scott McKnight trying to deal with the theological implications and Venema who comes from a very conservative uh, American evangelical background in which evolution was considered uh, a swear word says that the theory of evolution is very strong it's been around 150 years no one has disproved it and the longer it remains uh, without being disproven then the less likely it is ever that it will be disproven and he also says that had the likes of darwin not produced a theory of evolution through uh, natural observation then genetics the reading of the human genome would have produced exactly the same theory and from a theological perspective the most uh, significant conclusion of genetics is that the human genome requires a starting pool of 10,000 people from whom we are all descended not a starting pool of two so in other words this looks at the idea that earlier hominid species have produced uh, an opening balance of 10,000 homo sapiens from whom we are all descended so as far as venema is concerned the scientific evidence is simply too strong to reject out of hand and so we must as in their case scott mcknight does re-examine the biblical text the scientific evidence rejects adam and eve as the first humans let's look at genesis again and see if that's really what it does say so the hebrew word adam actually has a broad range of meaning it can mean man in the sense of a single male it can mean human in the sense of male or female and it can mean man 
as a singular word, but representing a group as in the whole species. So mankind or as the NRSV, which I'm using, translates it humankind. But importantly, in some cases in uh, Genesis, it is preceded by the definite article, the, the man. And thus it de de uh, denotes a particular individual who we know as Adam. Just to give you an example how the meaning is determined by the context as far as our translators go here we have an example in genesis 3 17 where the same hebrew words are translated in the nrsv as and to the man he said whereas the niv go with to adam he said so the context determines the meaning and in the uh, reference from genesis 5 1 and 2 we see that Adam occurs three times. In the first case, it relates to a genealogy, genealogy, so is translated as Adam. And in the other two examples, it relates to the plural them, male and female, so is translated as humankind, but it's the same Hebrew word. So let us now look at the first occurrence of the word Adam, which is in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And again, we can see the translation is made according to the context. So then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Literally, it says him. Male and female, he created them. So please note that there is actually no indication of who these humans were or how many of them. All we have is them, male and female. We know there is at least one male and one female, but it could be a lot more. It doesn't actually specify. So why then does our traditional interpretation say that Adam was the first man, Eve the first female, when they're not mentioned in Genesis 1? And the reason is that we then read Genesis 2 and assume it is referring back to day 6 of Genesis 1 and so was talking about those characters. But does the text actually support this? And for me, um, I've long felt that there are strong indications in the narrative that suggest there was a wider population outside of Eden. Where did Cain's wife come from? Who is he afraid of that uh, God marks him for protection? Why and how did he build a city? Who was going to live there? So there seems to be this suggestion that there is a population outside of the garden. So could it therefore be that Adam and Eve have been selected from this wider population for a particular role? And we turn again here to a book I mentioned last time, a very good book, I have to say, uh, The Lost World of Adam and Eve by John Walton. He's written a number of books on this um, sort of area and I'm giving you far less detail than um, you get in the book. Actually you'd also be able to find quite a lot of material from him on YouTube and uh, although he does go into a lot more depth than I'm giving you here he does do so in quite a, a light humorous style and I find him quite engaging. But for John Walton the key word in understanding the relationship of Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 is the word tolidoth, which means um, account. 
So it says in Genesis 2.4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So Toledoth means an account that relates either to an individual story or to a genealogy starting with an individual. And Toledoth in Genesis occurs um, 10 times and it usually introduces a sequel, seven out of 10 times. But on three of those 10 occasions, it's recursive. That means you have a narrative that divides. So initially you get the first branch of the narrative, then you come back to the starting point and you get the second. So it could be an example like Jacob and Esau. You get the story of Jacob, then you come back to the starting point and you find out what happened to Esau. So it would start at that separation point with Toledoth. So there is no case, therefore, where it is recapitulative, i.e. where it's going back over the story it's already told us, another version of the same story, which is how we traditionally read Genesis 2. It's another version of what we've already been told in parts of Genesis 1. So although that doesn't constitute proof that it can't here be recapitulative, it does suggest uh, that we should certainly consider that it's likely that it should be considered as either a sequel or recursive. And John Walton's suggestion is that we should understand it as a sequel. So if Genesis 2 is a sequel, then that presents a possible harmony with evolution and the genetics in that Genesis 1 is talking about how humans are formed way back seven, six, seven million years ago. Whereas Genesis 2 is Adam and Eve being selected from that starting pool of 10,000 and placed in Eden, the focal point of the sacred space we talked about last time. So Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So this language does indeed suggest physical construction. It sounds very much like it is going back over the formation, the construction of human beings described in Genesis 1. But we've already seen how God uses imagery familiar to Moses. And the imagery of physical creation would in that time, as it might even now, have used clay. Most of us can relate to making something from clay, but how many of us have ever made anything from dust? And we should also consider that uh, the word forming, we can form many things with our English word form, like friendships, opinions, plans, committees, all sorts of things that don't actually require physical materials or construction. And the Hebrew word can be used in the same way. And just to show you here that dust is an accurate translation, it's, it's not a word that would generally be translated as clay or earth or anything like that. And you can see that there are a handful of cases where it's ashes, debris, ground, loose earth, etc. But 91 times it is translated as earth. There's no um, vagary there. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do these statements about being made from dust and having the breath of life um, instilled into it apply to all humans or just to Adam? 
because if they apply just to Adam, this would be consistent with Adam being physically formed and therefore implicitly this would seem to suggest the first human. But if they apply to all humans, then Adam could have been born just like us through natural childbirth, but still be considered to be formed from dust. So let's have a look at that. So in Psalm 103 verse 14, it says, for he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. So that's we, all humans are made from dust. Same idea in Ecclesiastes 3.20. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all to dust, and sorry, and all turn to dust again. So even though we are all born through natural reproduction, we can still be described, as we see here, as originating and returning to dust, just like Adam. And then there's this very interesting passage in Job, Job 10, verses 9 and then down to 18. Remember that you fashioned me like clay, and will you turn me to dust again? Why did you bring me forth from the womb? So here we see Job describing himself as fashioned like clay, originating as dust and therefore implying that, sorry, returning to dust, therefore implying that he originated as dust, but also born physically from his mother's womb. So none of these types of forming are presented as mutually exclusive. They all apply, Job is applying them all to himself without any apparent contradiction. So what can we conclude? It seems from these passages that all humans are made of dust and it is a way of expressing our mortality, the decay of our physical bodies after death. Walton thinks this is a reference to the Jewish form of burial where you wrap a body in a tomb, leave it, and then you go back a year later and you'll find a pile of bones and a thin layer of dust that is all that remains of the flesh. So it suggests that uh, Adam is being referred to in his um, the designation to a particular role. His, his mortality is being referenced. He is formed from dust. He is mortal. Why is that being referenced? Because now there is a solution to that mortality, the tree of life. And Adam is being installed as a mediator of this immortality through the tree of life to uh, ensure access to the wider population outside to mortality, to immortality, I should say. So we are still formed from dust despite our natural birth. So Adam's forming from dust does not exclude the possibility that he was also born naturally and therefore allows the possibility that Adam need not be the first literal human, that he could have been a long way down the process of human development. So what Adam could not achieve has been fulfilled by Jesus. So Paul compares Jesus uh, and Adam as archetypes, an archetype being an example that others can match. So although Paul would probably have believed that Adam was literally the first man physically, we must again, like last time, consider the message that Paul is conveying rather than his underlying beliefs as with Paul's cosmology, which we considered last time. While Paul does indeed describe Adam as the first man, we should also note that he describes Jesus as the second man and the last Adam. 
And clearly, if Paul's point here is that Adam was the first man physically, then the second man would be Cain, not Jesus. And likewise, Jesus is clearly not in a literal sense the last man. He's not even close to being the last man. There's been billions since the time of Jesus. So Paul is talking here about archetypes. And this, uh, this section of scripture is actually translated very poorly. I've mentioned this before, but I can't pass without saying something about it. It is a case of square pegs being forced into round holes because it is presented in all translations to a greater or lesser degree as a contrast between physical bodies and spiritual bodies. But uh, if we look at the Greek, it makes it clear this is not the case. The word translated as physical, or in some cases a slightly better natural body, is psyche or psychicon. You can see soma means body, and we have the soma psychicon and the soma pneumaticon. Psychicon derived from the, the word psyche, which as in English today relates to the mind or the soul, and pneumaticon uh, meaning breath, and that relates to the, the spiritual. So Paul is comparing two bodies, not a physical body and a spiritual body, but two physical bodies, one which might be described, the, the soma psychicon might best be described as a soulish body, and the other physical body being described as a spiritual body. So both are physical bodies, but the first one is subject to decay, to returning to dust, like those of us all who follow the image of Adam, and thus return to dust. But the message Paul is conveying is that at the resurrection, we will receive a new body, the soma uh, pneumaticon, that unlike the bodies that we have now, will not be subject to decay like the body of the resurrected Jesus. So we've presented here an argument that means that we do not have to see Adam as the first man in the physical sense, but the, the first man perhaps to know God or the first man to have a soul even, or a man who's been selected from the wider population to act in a high priestly type role. But then we then have to deal with the issue of, okay, so if that wasn't describing Adam in a physical construction um, context, why does do we seem to have a story of Eve being constructed from Adam's rib? So in Genesis 2, 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. So first of all here, we have to consider the word, word tardimar. And that's a word that means, that represents a um, strong detachment from the world, meaning unresponsive. Particularly, it's used in the context of being unresponsive to impending danger but it's also used to represent in the context of detachment from the world being responsive because of that to a vision from God and when the Jews translated their Torah the first five books into Greek in the third century BC they used the word here for Tardimar they used the word ecstasis ecstasis which is the same word that they used in Genesis 15:12 when Adam, uh, sorry, when Abraham went into a deep sleep and received the vision from God representing the covenant. 
So then, is Adam receiving a vision here rather than undergoing divine surgery? So then, now we need to consider the word cellar, which is rib. Cellar is derived from an Akkadian word, which can be translated as rib or ribs. And so rib or ribs is a, a legitimate translation, but it isn't given this meaning nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's not even given an anatomical uh, meaning anywhere else in the Old Testament. And it's very often used architecturally, especially in connection to the tabernacle or temple, and relates to one of a pair. And you can see it often relates to side or side chambers. Given that Adam says, when awakening from this deep sleep, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this uh, does seem, Walton suggests, to, to suggest his understanding is more than he has lost a rib, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And he believes that what is actually, uh, Adam has actually seen here, is a, a vision in which his body is literally separated into two equal halves, one is which is then completed to make him whole again and the other which is formed into Eve and this seems to be uh, supported by the very next verse which then says therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh so there seems to be a symbolism by which coming together in marriage is representing going back to that original state in which Adam and Eve were both from the one body which was split into two. So then rather than being uh, a description of how Eve was physically constructed from the rib of Adam, the suggestion here is that Adam had a vision in which Eve is literally one half of him. So it seems to be a vision telling Adam how significant Eve is to him. She's not simply there to produce children. She's not simply there to serve him. She is, in a metaphorical sense, literally his other half. So we have an interpretation that allows both Adam and Eve to be seen as consistent with the scientific evidence of evolution, even if we would as Christians place God into the science, uh, but from which there could be an existing population and Adam and Eve are selected for a specific role to act as mediators from a wider population and to a wider population. So if they are not the literal first few humans, we are not all genetically descended from them and so cannot inherit their sin, which would mean that there can be no doctrine of original sin. And both Walton and Scott McKnight are evangelical Christians for whom original sin is a key um, doctrine. But interestingly, both in the light of confronting this scientific and textual conflict with original sin, go back to the Bible, look at original sin, and they both come to the same conclusion. There is no original sin in the Bible. And of course, it's encouraging for us to have our own interpretation of that um, validated. But I also think it's, uh, it's something that uh, needs to be saluted in both of them, that they're both 
been broad-minded enough to confront this fundamental doctrine for them to relook at it and to have the courage then to say sorry but it's not actually in the bible and i think from their backgrounds that's a brave step to take and a great example of what i'm encouraging us all to do in being prepared to question our interpretations so if adam and eve are not literally the first humans then some conclude that they are simply literary figures representing a story of human rebellion and when you consider it there are some things that do stretch our credulity a talking serpent a tree of life a tree of the knowledge of goodness and evil these all sound as though they could be symbols within an allegory representing some other story but it, in casing the general uh, message that is of human rebellion against God. And McKnight considers this view consistent with Paul's talking of Adam, given that, as we've already seen, Paul's treatment of Adam can be seen as an archetypal rather than relating to a, uh, a true story of a man. And I would certainly agree that it is a legitimate translation of the uh, a, a a legitimate interpretation of the story in Adonai that it could be seen in the sense of an allegory. However, because of our old friend David Roll, I'm inclined to uh, regard Eden as an actual place and uh, the garden within it, and therefore it would seem natural to conclude that Adam and Eve also were real people, and the fact that they are remembered in uh, the genealogies of Genesis suggests the same as well. And Roll, having been inspired by the historical reliability of the Bible in his first book, Test of Time, he then wrote a second book in which he looked at the even earlier history found in Genesis 1 to 11, the primeval history, and set this alongside the record of that history we have from the texts of uh, Mesopotamia starting with the Sumerians and then the Babylonians and Assyrians and asked what light the Genesis account can shed on uh, these other non-biblical texts and within this he locates the Garden of Eden using his sort of linguistic um, detective techniques and uh, he, he locates it, um, and I can show you on this next slide. Here in, uh, next in what is today Iran, this lake, I hope you can see um, my cursor, is uh, Lake Urumiya in modern day uh, Iran, and he locates the garden as this area um, designated by the Hebrew word for enclosed garden, Gan. And in even greater detail, it is shown here. And you can see he highlights references to some of the biblical names that uh, we are familiar with. I haven't got time here to go into more detail, but if you are interested in that, there was a discovery program called In Search of Eden, which um, recounts his journey of discovery. And uh, you will find that on YouTube. Um, I should warn you that there is a uh, the person who's downloaded it has edited into it a section from another program. I don't know why. So you might think, oh, it's gone. But if you just stay with it for a few minutes, it goes back to the uh, original program. And it is uh, very interesting, I think. So coming back to 
where this leads us. We do have now a potential interpretation that allows for the biblical narrative to sit alongside without any conflict to the scientific evidence of evolutions of humans, uh, in which we can see Adam and Eve, like all humans having been created mortal, having then been selected for a role, perhaps the, the first to know God in uh, some way that they are given access to immortality but through their rebellion this access is removed so the big picture so far creation begins with non-order rather than the chaos we find in accounts outside the bible because there is only one god and he doesn't have any other gods to fight for order so god instills order through decree and then he rests and aspects of non-order still remain. There is still a sea that doesn't disappear until Revelation 21. And there is less order outside of uh, the Garden of Eden and then outside of Eden itself than there is inside. And God rests because he has passed on the commission to install order to humans born in his image. But humans decide to define order themselves, and the result is the reign of sin and death. And although there are great examples of human order and human achievement, we are, as our current uh, coronavirus predicament demonstrates, unable to control the cosmos. And, uh, and therefore, there is still a large degree of disorder and non-order. So as... John Alton puts it, we harm one another, we harm the environment, and we harm ourselves. And therefore, as Romans 8.22 says, the whole of creation groans because of this predicament we are in. So next time we consider the image of God, as we are defined in Genesis 1. What does this mean? What, sorry, what did, did it mean in Genesis and what does it mean for us now? We've seen, as I've just referred to, order is finally established in Revelation 21. But what is our role as Christians in the church in reaching that state? So till next time, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed what Chris had to share. Again, as I said at the beginning, whether you agree with his interpretation or not is not the point. And not, Chris would not say that was the point. It's more about helping us to examine our assumptions. So what did, you, what did you learn from today? What did you learn about the specifics of what Chris is sharing? But what did you also learn about your own assumptions? Becoming self-aware of our preconceived ideas is a large part of maturing in our faith and maturing in our ability to be able to help other people come to faith. So this is to be discussed in our family groups. Hopefully you'll see this in time. I'm posting this on Thursday to be available for Friday night family groups or whenever they're meeting. That's what we're going to be doing. And perhaps the most important thing to discuss is not so much the doctrines specifically, although that's fine, but more about how can I, how can I learn the Bible better? How can I learn what the Bible's really teaching better so that I can reach out to other people and answer their questions with good reasons. I hope you find this helpful. If you do have any questions about the approach or about any specific doctrines, I know Chris will be happy to receive your messages or you can ask me questions or you can send me questions which I can pass on to Chris. 
So feel free to do that. My email address is malcolm at malcolmcox.org. Malcolm at malcolmcox.org. There is a fourth class which will be coming in two weeks' time. And if you have any feedback, please let us know. Between now and then, I hope you have a terrific evening whenever you're watching this and discussing this. And I pray God's blessings on you through this time when we're going through a challenging time with this COVID-19 virus crisis. God is with us and we can trust him. So let's do our best to be equipped to answer people who have questions about what's going on. Take care and God bless you.